What's up, everyone? Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. My guest needs no introduction, but I have to give one because Heather Langenkamp is here to talk about a whole bunch of your accomplishments, but we are here specifically celebrating the Midnight Club, which is exceptional. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Really Thanks no so surprise with Mike Flanagan at the I helm, know. but every single time, I'm like, how do you keep delivering shows this good at such a fast rate? He is just honestly the most creative person I've met in a very, very long time. He just constantly has ideas and he's always throwing them out. And I mean, what ideas he doesn't get to make into movies, I'd like to know those too. I'll take all of those. <laughs> um, so the first order of business on Collider Ladies Night is we play a game called Dicey Questions. Yes. Usually that involves a dice tower. The dice tower did not travel to New York. So you will <laughs> pick your own numbers. I have eight here and you'll have to pick three. So what is your first number that you'd like to pick? Five. All right. Number five. Oh, we are getting a Midnight Club one right out the oh, gate sure. here. So this one we're calling Midnight Club Mug. Let's say you are in the Midnight Club yourself. What does your mug look like and what is inside of it? Whoa. Oh, my mug has a very delicious cup of chamomile tea and very soothing, very, you know, not too much caffeine. I don't want to have the jitters. And on the kind of mug is, it's kind of like a homemade stoneware that I probably got at an arts and crafts festival in North northern california i love the specificity and like the warmth in that i also wish you told me the tea thing before i'd had like five cups of coffee this morning your next number now uh six. Oh, we are getting one of my favorite ones this is would you rather and this has become my favorite would you okay. rather question to ask it is a little silly would you rather have to fake sneeze in a scene or fake vomit in a scene well, my own personal sneeze is so loud and out of control that I would never want to repeat that on camera if I could avoid it. So I could probably muster up a really cute little sneeze. I would rather do that than vomit. Okay. I, I've worked with a lot of vomit and it's never fun. Never fun. Yeah, that's understandable. I also think about this, like I'm a highly allergic person and I sneeze very often. I don't think I've ever sneezed on camera in an interview before which is just astounding to me. I, yeah, I, I, for some reason in public, I don't sne sneeze that much, but at home, it's just like, it's embarrassing like, how loud it is. Have you seen a newscaster on a live broadcast sneeze? <laughs> they go like this, they go. <laughs> this you know, is what I think <laughs> in between interviews. <laughs> you have one more number. What is your final? Thing? Oh, it's going to be eight. Okay, this is another good one. And this one taps into Midnight Club as well. A little silly, but okay. this one is zombie apocalypse. Mm. There is a zombie outbreak on the set of the Midnight Club. You can pick two co-stars to team up with. Who do you pick that gives yourself the best chance of surviving? Oh, gosh. Holy cow. There are so many badasses in this show, first of all. But I would definitely pick Ruth Cod because she could, you know, kick the bejesus out of one of these zombies. And she would also really just, you know, have some choice words for the zombies that would probably scare them away anyway. And then the other person I would take with me, oh, hmm. I think I would probably take Iman because she's very um, dependable and she's very calm. And so, you know, when you're facing the zombies, you need someone who can keep their head on their shoulders and not freak out. 
like Chris would be making TikTok videos while they're like attacking us. And I don't want to be anywhere near any of that. Kind that of sounds thing. like a very good balance right there. Now I have to follow <laughs> up though. What is your greatest strength fighting the zombies yourself, but then also what's your greatest weakness, the thing that'll do you win? Well, my character's greatest strength, I think, in fighting the zombies would definitely be her, um, she could probably, you know, talk them down off the zombie apocalypse idea. She's very intellectual and she could probably have some great arguments about why the zombie apocalypse probably isn't a great idea today. That very much makes sense. I would believe that from her perspective. <laughs> All right, getting into it. Now, we always start every ladies' night with this question. What is the movie, show, personal experience, you name it, that first made you say to yourself, I have to be an actor and nothing else? Well, it definitely was when I was five years old and I was in a play. It was like a summer camp and I got to be a witch and I got to paint my whole face green with really crazy curly cute eye eyebrows. And I think I even wore teeth that were, you know, crazy witchy teeth. But when I saw myself in the mirror, I just was in love with the idea of dressing up to be something else. I love that. Yeah. You you bring up the the teeth part. I am I will get to this later, but I cannot stop marveling at makeup effects work in general, but as much as I would want to do it, my hard cutoff is anything related to my teeth because I'm terrified of the dentist. Hmm. Well, you know, when we like you know, when we make teeth for people and, and my other job, which is makeup effects with my husband, Dave, is uh, we pretend to be really nice dentists so that you would want to come back. And we make sure all the things that go in your mouth taste really good. Okay, that's helpful. I might need some like gas or maybe even a little Valium too, but one day maybe I'll let you guys try. Um, I know that early on you did a little background work to kind of get into the industry. And I'm curious if there were any expectations that those two productions set for you in terms of what it might be like for you to lead a film. And then how did your first film experiences compare to the expectations those sets set? Ooh. Wow, well... Yeah, my very first job was on The Outsiders. And then my first line in a film was Rumblefish, both in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the summer. And so I got to see how like a pretty big Hollywood production was being made and big trailers and fancy hotels. And the kids were, you know, ushered around here and there. And it seemed to me to be pretty fancy, you know, A-list production. And Probably with the exception of the Midnight Club, most of the productions that I have worked on, I mean, aside from like big television, you know, sitcom, but they've been pretty modest. And even Nightmare on Elm Streets were always, um, they were modest productions. And we didn't get a lot of fancy little, you know, extras. Um, I was really excited when I did Nightmare 7 that they gave me like a basket of fruit on the first day. I thought that was really nice. That's the least you should get. Here's but no, it was just like, oh my gosh, I have some apples and bananas. This is great. Here's something to follow up on that. What What is something that would be considered like a fancy thing for an actor to have that is actually useful and conducive to your work and your process? But then on the other hand, what is like a traditionally fancy thing that like really isn't necessary? Like that you would get as a gift maybe? Like a gift or any kind of like oh. part of the onset experience. Well, I have to say that when you get some kind of a, like a suitcase or a bag or something to take on the airplane with you that's really fancy or nice. I think that you really need that, you know, to, you have to carry your stuff around. And if it's in a great bag, what that's even better. So I am a sucker for luggage. 
<laughs> practical stuff there. I like it. Very practical. All right. Let's get into the first nightmare on Elm Street. With that, I'm very curious. What was the very first piece of material you saw? Was it a description mm. of the film? Was it sides? Where did all that start? No, it was the sides of the scene where um, it's uh, Tina and Glenn and I at the you know slumber party, and he's you know lying to his aunt and uncle that he's out with his friends, but he's really with us. And so that scene was the scene we read first. And um, so I just thought this was like a John Hughes fun <laughs> movie about teenagers. You know, didn't really get the sense that it was going to be a horror movie until you know said they they get sent me the script much later and and i'm like what is this like people on the ceiling oh my gosh getting blood coming out of a bed you know i didn't really know what to expect and my imagination was so limited at that time for horror i had no idea like what i was in for you know i i had more of like a wizard of oz mentality about what horror was going to look like must be night and day now so you had you had committed to nightmare on elm street before having a full understanding of what that movie was going to be oh yes definitely so when you got mm -hmm. the full rundown were you at all nervous about staying committed and seeing it through or did you have enough faith given the work that wes had already put out that like he's got this and this is going to work well, because no one really knew what Wes Craven was capable of. So, I mean, it could have gone the other way just as easily, you know, it could have been just a, a, a footnote in Hollywood history that a, a very inexpensive horror movie was made and no one ever heard about it again. I mean, that was definitely a possibility. Um, nobody had heard about Wes Craven, really. And I remember people weren't that excited about me doing a horror movie. They thought that that would be very stigmatizing and that people wouldn't get to see me like in the John Hughes, like happy teenager movies that were also being made at that time. So um, I was really desperate to stay in Hollywood. I knew that if I could just make, you know, that wages for that movie, that five week movie that I could stay probably another couple of months without having to go back home or, you know, um, I knew it would prevent me by having to have a, you know, waitress job for a few months if I could just, I kind of just was going to take the money and just do it. I am always curious to hear about that type of experience because I know this is an industry that has a habit of boxing people into their first grade success. Is that something that you experienced after that first movie came out or were those doors to other genres still open if you wanted them open at all? I think um, I felt a little bit of the boxing in stigma. I did feel it, though I don't, at the time, it's just so exciting to be able to go out on auditions and you you aren't really analyzing like, oh, I didn't get that part. Why? You know, it must have been that. But for a while, I did get asked to do a lot more kind of horror movie kinds of things. And I never wanted to take another role in horror. I mean, it was always like, I did my great role. I don't want to do another horror movie. And so... I, I think that was my mentality. The selfish perspective is like you were an icon in that specific <laughs> role. And as much as I want to see you in more hard, like don't because that's it. That's well, I it. knew so nothing special. could be as good as Nancy. I mean, I've always felt that as a teenager and as a woman who grew up in, you know, looking for good roles, it was really hard to find roles as good as that one. And um, except for now, I really feel like I found a role that's 
just as good as Nancy. Oh, yeah. I cannot yeah. wait to get into the specifics of playing Dr. Stanton. Before I have to ask more about working with Wes, because I've only heard the absolute best things about his sets from people who have been on this show and worked on his film. So what is something unique to a Wes Craven set mm. that you really appreciated and wish you would see on more sets out there? Um, the laughter, the jokes, the practical joking, this like all up until the moment that we were rolling camera, just everyone had such a relaxed and they everyone felt really happy to be on his sets. And um, my husband's worked with him too on different films than I have. And we both agree, like he's one of the funniest um, men that we have ever known, uh, you know, and it's, we miss him so much because he just was so brilliant at making people feel one that they were working really hard and doing a good job, which I think as a director is one of the nicest things you can do for people is actually compliment people on their work, which you think would happen all the time, but it really doesn't. And um, he was very generous that way. He, he made, you know, he took people aside and said, you know, thank you. You're doing a great job. That needs to happen yeah. in every industry out there way more than it does. It's it's reminding me one time another actor told me about a director's monitor dance where he did something <laughs> behind the camera. And so the actor would always know that the director liked the take. So did Wes have a tell like that where if he did something oh. back there, you knew you got it? Well, I mean, back then we didn't have video villages or video monitors. So he literally was standing right next to the to the camera. And, you know, it's very distracting to have the director that close to you sometimes when you're acting but um there were some technical shots like i know this shot with the tongue phone that people love so much um we did a million takes it seems like of that and then finally when it you know when it finally was what he wanted you know he yeah he would just clap you know he would he would clap or smile or laugh i mean he would do you know, he let me know that he liked it. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> what about his approach to working with you as an actor's director on all the films you collaborated on? Was there ever a moment where, I don't know, you were having a tough time accessing something in a scene and he gave you a note or something you needed and then all of a sudden it changed your own perspective and way of tackling something? So I would always, you know, I'm a very literal person. So if things don't make sense to me, that I would always want an explanation like, okay, you know, tell me why Nancy is doing this thing. Like, and then he would just look at me and said, Heather, it's a nightmare. Anything goes. And so he would never let me like over reason over be overly logical. He's like, this is a dream. Just, you know, have fun with it. And you know, that you don't always have to come with all this backstory and all prepared because it's a dream, you know, it's like, can be wild. It can be unusual and you could have different ways of of playing it that would all work. I feel you know? like that should have been a tagline for one of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> very appropriate. Um, I have to touch on New Nightmare because it is one of my absolute favorites awesome. in the franchise and your performance is like truly Thank exceptional. You. It's exceptional in all of them, but that one is Thank the favorite you. for me. Um, it is a very unusual experience to get to play yourself in a movie. Yes, so is there anything weird. you learned about your own craft by doing that that surprised you? Or maybe anything about, you know, the Nightmare franchise and its legacy that took you by surprise by playing yourself in that capacity? I think my willingness to play Heather Langenkamp is more of a reflection of how much I cared about Wes than it was about my desire to do that. I, I he had to kind of really convince me that it was going to be okay. And so what it made me do is like, I trusted him that it wasn't going to be terrible because my biggest fear was that 
nobody would buy the premise and that it would be a laughing stock of Hollywood or something. And, and, and then here would be my name attached to it. Like that's my selfish fear. And, and so he worked on me for, you know, a couple of days, like in the very early moments of showing me the script, because I just didn't, I didn't have the imagination again. Like I was deficient in understanding like that it would be a good movie. And once we got onto the set, you know, whenever I had trouble, like at one point, I didn't want to say that my mother had been in a mental institution. You know, Heather Langenkamp doesn't want to say that my mom was in a mental institution. And so he and I argued about that point because he really wanted me to say it. And um, I didn't say it. I, I just like put my foot down. I'm like, I'll do anything for you, but I won't do that. Okay. You know? A broader question to yeah. build on that because I know it can be tough, especially for newer actors in the industry to figure out how and when to voice an opinion when something that the leader on set like hasn't written on the page. So right. given your experience in that sense and also in other times on other sets, how how do you figure out how it's best to go about expressing your own thoughts on something, even if it means changing somebody else's vision? It's um yeah, I mean, even on Midnight Club, there's moments when you're asked to say something that maybe you don't you can't fully really get your heart around it, you know, or your brain. And you just I usually say, you know, I'm very specific. I'll say this line is is it's is it's some it's stopping me. I don't know why, like I'm not really able to figure out how to deliver this line. And then I would say, could we perhaps change it to this? Or would you think about changing it to that? Or use this word instead of that word? And I'm always prepared for no, which I'd say 80% of the time they say no. But I know that I've said my piece. And then I, and then I always will say, well, I disagree. And then I'll get on with it. It's on. It's just so they can just know that, you know, I had an opinion and they know that I disagreed with their answer. And, you know, it's always civil and it's always um, everyone hopefully has, you know, the sense of we need to work together in kindness and find that. But yeah, I, I've become, I am happy when I'm able to do that too, because then you establish yourself as someone who cares so much that you're actually looking at every single word and you're coming to work with all these ideas. And I think it lets them know that you're not just, coming and spitting out lines and leaving at the end of the day. Well, we're definitely going to come back to that. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, before we jump into that, though, I am I am curious about your makeup effects work, because I know your husband is yeah. very prolific in that realm. And I was I never know when IMDb is fully accurate, but it seems like you you picked and and had chosen those projects to, you know, to a certain uh, to a certain extent, a certain amount of them, at least. Why those particular projects? I think it was a uh, Dawn of the Dead. Um, I had the, I had the other ones here: Dawn of the Dead, Cinderella Man, Evan Almighty, Cabin in the Woods. Why those four in particular? Well, I think it's just a matter of the producers were nice enough to put my name on the on the on this on the crawl um, because a lot of movies that so my husband is the designer; he designs everything, and then we have a crew that helps us make everything: mold makers, painters, hair punchers, feather layers, like every kind of crazy craft in the industry. And, you know, I'm more of the manager of the company. So I, you know, make sure people are coming in and doing their jobs. And I'm not really that involved in the artistry of it, but I am there every day. And I'm usually, you know, sometimes talking to producers. So I think they don't have to put my name on there. And we always provide a very long list of everyone who was involved. 
And it's up to the producer actually to put those names on the crawl. That is absolutely fascinating because it seems like someone involved in that capacity, a credit should kind of be a no-brainer. But... <laughs> well, I think, I mean, especially for the people that, you know, we work with, I know that is true, especially like when we see movies with a lot of CGI now, it just seems like there's like 900 people, you know, contributing to that movie. But it's very hard to get every makeup effects artist on the crawl. And it's something that my husband and I, you know, we don't have any power over it. So, you know, we just shrug and kind of move on. Oh, I wish there was something we could do to change that. So everyone recognized <laughs> for their hard work. Yeah. Um, before we leave the effects work, I didn't want yeah. to ask you about Star Trek Into Darkness yeah. because you you have a good amount of experience of, uh, you know, working in that sphere where you're working with the folks who are designing and right. applying that. Is there anything about actually wearing all of that yourself that, you know, right. made you realize something in the process was really significant that you didn't fully embrace to that extent before? Well, I'd always wanted to wear a prosthetic makeup because watching Robert England do it so much and it wasn't easy. And I knew that um, as an actor, I'd really, it's just a fun thing to get to wear a big prosthetic makeup. So that I played that character Moto that had been made for me for like another project actually. And we just kind of had it laying around and, um, and they needed, you know, they just wanted some more creatures in this particular scene. So David said, well, we can put Heather in this makeup. So it was five hours of makeup. It was a lot of makeup. And my father-in-law, Lance Anderson, who is also a makeup effects artist, he applied it. And it was a really special day for me because I had my, my father-in-law doing my makeup and it looked fantastic and I loved it. And unfortunately, it's not in the film for very long, um, but it was a very special makeup. The fact that it's you under all of that just tickles me. And it makes me very happy that it was such a special personal experience for you. Yeah. All right. Midnight Club now. One of the first things that I read in the production notes with this particular character is that Mike flat out said he was looking for a horror icon to fill this role. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was me reading that yeah. that gave me Nancy vibes when I watched your performance. <laughs> was, was, was that on your mind at all? Did you want to imbue Dr. Stanton with any Nancy qualities? I think, I mean, Nancy has so many great qualities and we've seen her, you know, we saw her kind of grow up and become a woman too. And she was like a, you know, a, a therapist in Nightmare 3, of course, and doing group therapy sessions. So of course, people are going to draw a lot of comparisons to that. Um, you know, in the end, I think you sometimes do your best work when you use parts of yourself in the role. And I love kids so much and um, young people, especially, I feel like we need to do as much as we can to kind of, you know, be their mentors and help them get through life, which is so trying. And I just felt that that part of me was really so similar to Dr. Stanton. And, um, and, and so it was, it, it kind of fit like a glove, the part. I'd never felt like I, I had to do a lot of like extra research, like, how do I be this doctor, this woman who, who's taken responsibility for all of these sick children? I mean, it's, I don't think personally I could do what she does, but I, I definitely can, I have a glimpse of what kind of person I wanted her to be. Not many people can do things like that. So yeah. it is very important that we have so many people in the world yeah. like that. Um, I need to highlight this incredible ensemble you get yes. to work with. And I guess the way, the way to get at it here might be so like, you, you started out really young, had a whole bunch of great success early on. Is there anything you saw one of the cast members of Midnight Club do that you wish you could like 
pocket and then tell your younger self, like, try that. That's a really cool technique. Well, I think, um, gosh, that's a really great question. Um, each kid has their own thing, actually. Um, I'll hear about as many you know, of them. I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, Iman is a very calm and um, concentrate. She's very, can concentrate very hard on what she's doing. And I really admire the way she is able to be the lead in a show. And it made me realize like my job at Nancy, I worked for five weeks and we made an entire movie. Like she had to work for so many months maintaining that character and never getting tired or bored or, you know, like, let, you know, are we done yet? Like none of that. It was so every day, even the last day, she was just so ready to be that really intense person. And it was an intense role. And so I, I could really feel for her. Um, you know, Anara is, I, she has this ethereal, like incredible soft beauty that is um, so, so appealing. And a lot of times I, I wish I had had more of that as Nancy, because a lot of people say that Nancy was kind of more of an asexual teenager, like the, the, the parts of her, um, her sexuality are not really, um, not really on display in Nightmare One. And I kind of agree with that. And yet I didn't really have that thing. And I don't know why, but I just, I don't feel like I brought that to the screen. But I see like in Inara, I see something that I would have loved to have had a handle on. And I mean, Chris is so much fun. Like while we're like, I'm sitting there studying my lines, he's literally like totally able to forget that he's on a set and he doesn't seem to let it get, you know, make him crazy or anything. He just has such a natural sense of fun and, and always making everybody laugh around him. I, I think that I would pocket that away. I, I think Igby, I would pocket his intensity and wanting, he really wants to be, um, I mean, like the best actor in the, in the universe. I get the sense, like he is so driven to like put on his very, very best every day. And all of these qualities are things that, you know, I, I might've had, but I really see it in them. Thank you so much for visiting us oh, today. It's for so being a wonderful. Glider, ladies night. Thank it was you such so a pleasure much. to meet you. And I'm excited to talk well, more thank later. Thank you for all the nice things you said about the show. Of course. Thank I mean you. it so much. All right. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.